All right, welcome back to the Ford Podcast. It's me, Lance, your host. My guest this week, Turk Pipkin, all six foot seven of him. Turk's been in this uh, this part of the world for a long time, been in Austin uh, almost that entire time. Some of you might recognize him from uh, some of his acting. He was an actor. He did he was on The Sopranos, Friday Night Lights. But Turk has lived an interesting life, and seemingly, uh, you know, you, sometimes you meet people that that it just seems like they know everybody. Well, Turk Pipkin is one of those people. Like whether it's Willie Nelson or Bob Dylan or Roger Stallback or uh, I, I'm just making up. I mean, just like oh yeah, oh I got a story about them. The dude has gotten around, but most importantly, is he started an amazing nonprofit called the Nobility Project, which really just started out as, which is we speak a lot about these two things in the in this episode, but really started out as a film where he went around and interviewed a whole bunch of Nobel Prize winners uh, and just you know asked them amazing questions, and and out of that spun the Nobility Project, which is an is a great charity that uh, that him and his wife uh, founded many many years ago. So they're doing great work. Fascinating conversation. One of those ones that could have gone on for hours and hours. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to Turk, two quick things. I say it every week. I talk about my son's football team, but I love my son and I'm super proud of him. Uh, Westlake High School finished the regular season undefeated, ten and zero, heading to the playoffs next Friday. I should know where they're playing, but I can't remember. Um, so good luck to the Shaps. Um, and lastly, uh, the Texas Hundred registration is up. You can go to texashundred.com. April 14th is the ride. Uh, the price, the registration fee at rather is, is about to go up. So hurry up and, uh, and get over there and register. Beautiful route, 100 miles, rolling hills in central Texas. I think you'll love it. And a uh, fun little party after. Um, like I say each and every week, questions or comments, concerns, send me an email, theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. And uh, here goes Turk. See you guys next week. All right, Turk, thanks for being here. Tell me about this book of the every month club. I think it's fascinating that you decided to write six books in a year. I can't read six books. Well, luckily, it's book of the every other month club, not the book of the month club, because then it would be 12, and that would be a nightmare. Um, you, you thought about it. I thought about it. I um, Why would any writer publish, it would publish six, write and publish six books in a year? And I think the answer is, I've been doing this Nobility Project stuff, making movies and building schools and working with homeless kids and stuff for the last 10 years, but I write all the time I write. And then if you don't have time to publish, it starts stacking up. Yeah. So the only thing I really published in that, in the last 10 years was the Dow of Willie, which I wrote with Willie Nelson. And, um, I, um, I guess the one that really kicked it off was I, I wrote this novel all for love. I, real favorite of mine about a um, mom, uh, about a father and a daughter that, uh, there's the cover. This is the first one That's all the, for yeah. love. And it was not the first one, but it's the first one I wrote. It'll be like the spring reading, summer reading novel. But uh, All for Love, it's a father and a daughter that are lost at sea in the Sea of Cortez. And you don't actually have the actual book there, but uh, just the cover. And um, the mom and uh, a pilot who is this guy's mentor looking for him from the air. So it's like a very gripping story of rescuing this little girl before they die at sea. 
and story of this family. It's a really, really a book about love. And I sent it to New York a few years ago uh, when I first finished it. Hmm. Everybody who read it said, this is going to make an incredible movie. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll send it to LA and see what kind of response I get. So I sold the movie rights like that. Movies in development. And now I realize I want people to read the book. I don't want to see the movie first, right. assuming the movie gets made. And then I realized, well, you know, everybody wanted me to write a sequel to my Christmas novel, When Angels Sing, and I have the story in my head. And uh, next thing I knew, I had six books. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 that's, a, that's a tall task, man. I, I couldn't. So three year, three year novels, it's not really crazy. Right. Requiem for a screenplay is, is probably the biggest one. It's, they got the heft. But uh, it's book. I yeah, call it my book in there. my magnificent failures because it's three screenplays I you know I w was basically hired to write for my stories and pitches in L.A. and the, they didn't get made but I love them and I realized so, you know a lot of times I acted in a lot of films where the script was better than the final film so didn't, I thought didn't one of didn't because uh, here on Amazon it says uh, when angels sing that didn't that wasn't made into that, a movie that, when angels sing was made into the movie angels sing Harry uh, Connick Jr. with Willie uh, Willie Chris Christopherson Lyle your pal Lyle. our pal Lyle Lovett who I've known since A and M days uh, and Lyle's amazing in it um, actually Willie is amazing in it he plays a guy named Nick who may or may not be Saint Nick and uh, <laughs> and what could be better than Willie as as a guy who might be Santa Claus. So the sequel, it was a movie's beautiful, and it's actually playing on TV every November, or December, wall to walls on the several different TV stations, um, hmm. and but it's about a guy. Harry Connick in the movie plays a guy whose family needs a house. They've been renting and they have to get out, and they can't afford a house. And he runs into this old man who says, "It's for sale. Come look." And it's like the most amazing house in the world, and he sells it to him for a song, basically for whatever he can afford. It's yeah. a gift. Because yeah. the family needs it more than he does. And uh, so it, that's a really beautiful story about Christmas. But the, the follow-up is really, well, what happens to a guy who sells his house for nothing? He gives his house away. Yeah. And then, as it turns out, gives his beautiful old red, classic red pickup away, which looked like a kind of truck Santa Claus might drive, and then meets somebody who needs some money and gives his money away. What happens when you give your house away is you become homeless, and which I think is a Pretty powerful Christmas story for today. There are a lot of homeless people in our world. Yeah, speaking of that, because I didn't know. I mean, I, I want to get into nobility here in a second, but uh, but you know, I have this idea of just in knowing you and having been to a few of your events, and then obviously studying all this on the web today. But I didn't the, the working with homeless children part. I, I didn't even know that part of your life. Well, and we we are which, by the way. I mean. <laughs> That to me is like where we're sitting here on in East Austin on Cesar Chavez. When I drive down here every day to either do this podcast or work or whatever, I drive past the the food. I don't know. I don't. I mean, yeah. I, should, I don't know what they call it. Where they hand out the food right over here, right on, right by I thirty five. And boy, today they. I mean, it, it just they were everywhere. These these homeless folks and and there are a lot of homeless and a lot of hungry people in in Austin, Texas, and in a lot of every other city in yeah in America. Well, they like Austin. They like places that are warm and liberal. Yep, you know. And but there's a lot of them in other places as well. It's 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 surprising how many homeless people there are in America. The numbers growing rapidly, and the people we see on the street tend to be you know a lot of times you day labor kind of guys and mm -hmm. um, if you go by the arch the uh, the, sure. the main homeless place downtown by the police station you'd, you'd see a lot of women and men both over there but kids don't go to the arch and 
if you, but if you're a family, if you're, let's say you're a single mom and you, uh, you've got two kids or three kids or something and dad's gone to wherever and you're broke and you lose your house, which is pretty easy to do. You can't afford to pay rent. Look what rent costs. You end up living in a station wagon or you go to some social services and they find you temporary housing. Your kids are still deemed homeless. They don't have a permanent place to live. They're not enrolled in school. State law requires, uh, McKinney-Venter Act requires every kid to be enrolled in school, no matter what their living circumstance. Uh, AISD doesn't have the funds to go find. and You know, school's free, but backpacks and health checks and dental checks and inoculations and school supplies and transportation, Transportation, none of that stuff's free. So we work with uh, Project Help at AISD. Uh, It's a partnership, Nobility Project and Cap City Kids, great organization that we partner with. So we're actually the the supplies partner. So you're, and, you're we're talking about homeless families. <clears throat> homeless. The kids are mostly homeless families. You know, you can't have a kid over there sleeping in the shelter at the arch. They're going to have to be. But uh, some of these kids are couch surfing kids. They're out of their homes because of unstable situations, right. or their parents are gone, and they're sleeping on a sofa of another student they know. Hmm. And a, a lot of the time, the 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 counselors at AISD or the head ma- the principal or the assistant principal, they find these kids by looking at enrollment. It's hidden that they're homeless, and and they go, well, look, this kid with this last name and this kid with this last name have the same address. It's not an apartment number, you know, or it's the same apartment number, and so somebody's got to be out there looking for these kids because they're really trying to hide. And if they're really trying to hide that they're homeless, what what will happen is they'll never finish school, hmm. and then you just perpetuate the cycle. So hmm. it's really easy to for us to go in and be a supply sponsor and 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 support what Project Help does. Cap City Kids, who are our partners, they work with the UT School of Social Work. So um, the, uh, the UT School of Social Work actually provides the counselors who mm-hmm. administer these programs in the schools. It's a well thought out. Have you ever just shadowed a homeless person? Not shadowed. I mean, I've, in the sense that you just, you know, the, I've, I've heard of these charities that do, or I don't know the, the setup, but you basically go be homeless for a day or two or maybe longer. Just so you get a, you know, a true sense for just how desperate that situation is. You know, I, I've never part done, of me is wanted to do that. That's the only reason. Yeah, I'm no, I, I think it's something you could do. You know, and I think that uh, you, I think people when you meet someone that's homeless, what what you learn is that most of the time there's a lot more story there. We tend to like judge the whole situation mm-hmm. on a guy that's standing on the street corner, you know, with a sign, and he's flying a sign, or he's got his hand out at the light. But some of that's determined by city regulations. It's something I'd really like to see change. Uh, my Kind of my inspiration in all of this is Alan Graham from Mobile Oves and Fishes and this yeah. great homeless village community right. first, which is open to the public. And they have weekly community dinners. You can go to community first and you can go out there and, and you call them and ask them, when, when would I be welcome to come, you know, bring a little food and put it on the grill and have dinner with everybody. And these are amazing people and they want to work. The reason they're panhandling is because the city won't let you, for instance, you can't, you can't sell. So when I was young, a lot of people been around in Austin, they remember crazy Carl Hickerson or Max Knopfsiger. He used to be a city council person before Max was on the city council. He was a flower vendor. He stood on the street corner and he sold carnations and roses. <laughs> he, he spun them on his finger with a little balancing act and buck a pop and you bought them and he just constantly, huh. but it's illegal to do that now. So you can't sell something on the street corner, but you can stand there because of freedom of speech. You can stand there with a sign that asks for money. Right. So what you've got to do is, you know, at some level is you have to equip people who may not 
have the temperament or the education to hold down a full-time regular job to be able to go out there and be entrepreneurs to make money honestly yeah and before we hit record here we unfortunately we're talking about this this shooting uh just outside san antonio yesterday and just the and i don't want to get too much into that because i've done that on this show before and that bumps everybody <laughs> out but look, you this, got a lot of nerve yeah well it was just it, it, anyways um it, it's an awful situation but but you have a uh you know you have a a, a shooter who you know clearly had some some you know some emotional and mental issues and 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 so obviously uh there's a lot of that in the homeless community not that they're violent well there's but, reasons but, but, you know you don't just go become homeless only right. because of econ- uh, economic circumstances yeah. but w- the thing most people have in common is they've lost their family or they've lost touch with their family right. and they don't have anybody there's no one to fall back on anymore yeah. but sometimes that's through the through fault of their own yeah you know if you have a drug problem Yep. And then eventually you you know start stealing stuff from your mom and then your brother and then whatever. Eventually you you're on your own. Yeah. And once you're on your own, then there's nobody to fall back on anymore. So people need care. They need health care. I tell you, I ride every t- every day. I ride. I don't ride this bike path every day, but from my house, I go down Pease Park and then I get on the Shoal Creek Trail there. Yeah, we got water. Um, and there's this. Have you ever seen these? Uh, it's it's like a it looks like a sleeping bag, but it's kind of a bed that they suspend, you know, like my kids have them. So the track meet, they hang them up in the trees where they relax. And now there's a company in town called Kamek that makes them. They're really great. Yeah. yeah. So this, the underneath Lamar, uh, when I cross under on the, on the Shoal Creek bike path, I see this guy every time. And I, and I just, and then half a mile later, there's another guy who's spent the whole night on a, on a concrete bench. And I'm like, well, I mean, if I'm going to do it, like that's the move. Like it, the guy actually looks comfortable. Yeah. In the Kamek, yeah. yeah. If you got to, got to stumble across somebody's used Kamek or, or a right, hammock, you, yeah, can, yeah, you can manufacture he, one on your own. But, yeah, no, sleeping he, on that cold bench. You know, it's illegal to sleep in public, too, but the, there's places where <clears throat> APD allows that to happen. It's a, it's a tricky circumstance. But a lot of people are just hidden out there in the woods, including you, young people. You mean young like people. 50 feet out, outside their front door? Well, yeah, well, you know, in general, you can't sleep in public. And it it's just a... You know, it's a way to control homeless people, which, you know, is effective in some circumstances mm-hmm. and punitive in others. It depends on how you look at it. But yeah. there's places like up by the old library, there's a couple of benches, park benches up there that I think just traditionally APD is allowed. And, okay, this is a place where people can sleep and they have their belongings under these benches. And it's not right on the main street. It's on the side street. And <clears throat> there's always four or five people camped on those things. Yeah. Um, but most people are off hidden somewhere. There's a lot more of them than we realize. Well, I tell you, we're talking about, you know, people living in cars and living under bridges and it, it just makes it hearing you talk about this and, and just the, the heaviness of that. It, it makes a guy like John Paul DeJoria story just even, you know, here's, he's been on the show before about a year ago, but I mean, to go from basically well not basically living in his car many 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 years ago with it with a, with his child to being one of the wealthiest people in this country i mean my god what a comeback i went from living in my car to being one of the least wealthy people in the country it's not quite the same well thing. that's amazing <laughs> that is amazing see that's why you're here but um but i but see when i was living in my car i mean joe ely and i we always talk about when we used to you know hitchhike semi-trucks and lived in vehicles and and rode trains but i was you know i was a performer i did shows all across america and the way you got there was you know with your thumb out and or or on a 
freight train or in a old car that you drove. Well, and, you did uh, it all. I, I did it, but you, you because did. but I loved it. It was a time when it was really safe, relatively safe to do that. Now, being homeless is not safe. Yeah. And there are a lot of women. And we talk about kids, but there's a lot of women out there. And there's you know it is great great peril to your uh, to your safety to be a woman who is living on the street by yeah. herself. Yeah. And back then you were, you, you did it all. You were a magician. You were a comedian. <laughs> I read that you opened up for Rodney Dangerfield. Is I that true? I toured for a year with Rodney Dangerfield as his opening act. Well, right when, when, uh, like hung out with Rodney Dangerfield. Oh yeah. Tons. Come on. Oh yeah. No, we, we, we lived on a bus together. We, and we, that I'd, go to, I'd go to amazing. Go okay. To the rest club. of the pod, that's all we're talking about. We're talking about Rodney. Players club in New York. Rodney, right when, um, when Caddyshack was coming out and Rodney's career was suddenly yeah, good timing booming. And he, <laughs> I got hired to open for him, uh, at the Paramount theater in Austin, where I was often opening for a lot of really great acts. And then the promoter had a show in San Antonio the night before he said, well, I want to put you on the show in San Antonio. And uh, if those go good, then we'll put you on the show in Houston. So the first show in San Antonio was 500, 600 people. And then the Paramount was 1,100, 1,200, and these were sold out, you know. And then by the time we got to Houston, a couple of nights later, it was Jones Hall. I'm in a symphony hall opening for Rodney Dangerfield for 3,000. Oh, by the wow. time the tour ended, one of the last shows we did, I think, was uh, the basketball arena at Notre Dame, 10,000. So in the course of this less than a year, we went from 500 to 10,000 seats. But I did an act that was mo mostly visual, not exclusively. That's why Rodney loved for me to open, because I wasn't up there telling jokes like he was telling. But yeah, I was, I was funny, and I would get in the audience's face, and you know, people would heckle me. I'd just run up the stage and pretend like I was going to just leap in the audience. and It was funny. And uh, he thought my act was great, and we hung out, and we partied, and we did the whole thing. And then at the end of the tour, we basically, after the Notre Dame show, I think we basically said... I said, Rodney, you know, they couldn't see my act. I'm doing. I'm either going to have to go to an all-talking act or I'm going to have to quit. And he said, yeah, I didn't really want to tell you that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, had a, we had a great time. And uh, But and, he was just the way you think he was. It was like, why is this shit always happening to me? He'd be on the bus and his maid would send a thermos with his ch favorite chicken soup in it. But she never put the little screw in, stopper on it, just the little cup thing on top. And it would go in his suitcase before he came, flew, and got on the bus. So every time he would go to open it, there would be this third of a cup of hot chicken soup around the edge of it that there's literally no way you can open it without it falling all over him. And he would never think about it. He'd be talking, and he would screw the lid off, and it would splash all over him. And he would go, why is this always happening to me? It was total Rodney Dangerfield. And Caddyshack comes out in the middle of that I mean, yeah and, i think it was out by that time that it was just come out when that for we did those first shows mm -hmm. and that's why and it just you know it just grew and grew and grew yeah he was i didn't i never knew that about you i, I just in reading about it today i was like a wow. great he is a sweetheart of a guy and hilarious and uh partied really hard oh really nice i love that and you partied right along with him well, not not hundred percent, but much of the way. Yeah, <laughs> there was a there's a point in that night where I had to be I had to drop out of the fun. Yeah, let's talk about the Nobility Project. Yeah, well, that's quite a transition. And, well, I know, but it, it it's it's a good transition, and it's it's. And again, I've been to a few of your events, and and obviously, no, we have a lot of. I love it friends. when you came down, Ben Hart. We were honoring Ben Harper. Yeah. We we do a this is our gala, the Feed the Peace Awards. We do at the at the Four Seasons every year, Valentine's weekend. And yep. Ben was like, I said, Ben, are you ready with your, your remarks? You need to help. What do you want to do? And he's like, 
I'm ready. I'm ready. Where's Lance? <laughs> yeah. So he, he was, uh, I hadn't shaved in like three months mm-hmm. and I walked in, Anna and I walked in with a roadie and Ben put these two chairs right beside the stage. And I mean, I speaking of homeless, I mean, I literally looked like a homeless yeah, ben guy. Ben hadn't shaved in three months either. I don't yeah. think. He just had a birthday. Hey, Ben is another sweetheart guy. It was a really big thing for him to come to Austin and play. I mean, normally what we do is we will honor an artist, Willie, we've and Chris Christopherson, and we did Jerry Jeff last year, which was amazing, and um, we put together a bunch of great artists. You know, when we honored Willie, Lyle. I was at the Willie one. Yeah, Lyle Levitt and Robert Earl Keane and Joe Ely were all up on stage in a guitar pole, and they've gotten bigger. Right. And Ben's like, hey, you know, I'd just like to play my songs. I don't need you to bring in. I said, we'll we'll bring in Mose and you know, the whole band. He's like, no, I just I just I'll just come play. And you know, he see you heard him. He played those three songs. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah. And yeah. then we still had a show because I think that was uh, Jimmy Jimmy Vaughn then closed out the night with the full band afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And then the, so this year you're honoring Dan Rather. Mm-hmm. And the Flatlanders. The Flatlanders, and if people know them by their individual names, that's Joe Ely, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, and Butch Hancock. So February eleventh, their first band, February eleventh at the Four Seasons, and their first band in Lubbock was together was the Flatlanders. And about every ten years, they've got together, and every time they've done it, the world has gone crazy for the Flatlanders, and they'll do a new album and they'll tour, and then they say, okay, maybe we'll do it again in yeah eight or ten years. So, but but the, but the Nobility Project really. It, at least this is my perception. Tell me if I'm wrong. It it, it started as a film. It, it started as a film. You got it called Nobelity. Yeah. And where you talked to seven or nine nine Nobel laureates. Nine Nobel and laureates. I had an. It was a film. It was for profit. I had been trying to make this film for two or three years. I couldn't find the money. It's kind of an expensive documentary to travel around the world and shoot. And then I got cast in The Sopranos, and I got a much higher profile. And somebody came along and said, I'll invest in this film. It sounds like a great idea. But as soon as I did the interview with Desmond Tutu, which just blew me away. Right. And, uh, I mean, it, it started with a huddle up with the cameraman and Desmond Tutu and my wife, Christy, and, and, uh, and the archbishop with a prayer. And then we immediately sat down, and he told me quite a ribald joke to follow it up. And um, I, um, I realized um, that this really wasn't a for-profit thing that right. we owed these Nobel laureates who were giving us their time. And, you know, Wangari Matai, the first woman, African woman to win a Nobel prize and she won the peace prize. She's the one that first invited me to Kenya when I was shooting this film. And that's how we ended up building most of 35 schools in Kenya. Right. Because I, schools, libraries, so I owed it to these guys. We became a nonprofit. My investors said, great, I'll roll my investment into the nonprofit. That's a good investment too, which hmm. is the kind of investor you know, every startup would like to have, Yeah, I just want the money to do good things. And, um, so we made three films, a novelty, look at the world's problems, one piece at a time, look at solutions and building hope, which is as we focus more and more on education, we just have realized it's about a school that we built called Mahiga Hope High School. And we realized the place where we could really have an impact was mostly in the world of education. And that, and it's something that relates to all of it, that, the idea of education for all, you really can't solve the world's problems unless the world is educated. And that doesn't just apply to, you know, the developing world. It applies to every part of the world. Of course. And our country, as we know, is not the greatest education wise. We do okay, but we could do better. Yeah. We're not Norway or Switzerland or anything. So we don't have free college for everybody. Right. 
Right. And um, I'm not sure everybody did you needs go to, college? to go to college. You didn't go to college, did you? I, I went to college multiple times. Oh, I, you did? I, yeah. Well, that's, that's multiple I, times more than me. I may be the only UT University of Texas commencement speaker who didn't graduate from the University of Texas <laughs> when they, right before I was. Now I'm at Craven. Right before they were going to. Uh, uh, they introduced me for my commencement speech. They said, uh, at, this is just a at school of fine arts, which is perfect for me. And, and they said, uh, Dean said, um, and what year did you graduate? And I went, oh, you didn't really ask me about that graduation part. So, whoops. <laughs> but so, I was interrupted for three and a half years in the Navy the first time. So I have good excuses. Yeah. I'm old enough to have been in the draft years. Yeah. Wow. So of these, you interview nine Nobel laureates. I mean, what's, what comes out of that? What, what's your takeaway from, First, was there a consistent, was there some sort of consistent message and what was the most significant thing, the most profound thing you heard from any of the nine? Well, I think there is a consistent, there was a pretty much consistent message, even though I'm asking them all about a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, one, one is, um, this is 2004 and three when I was shooting these interviews. Mm. and the, Tricky time. And the one, one thing I look at, yeah, the one thing I look at is that, um, the very, very kind of cautious talk about climate change with and changes and what's going to happen in the world with uh, with Steve Weinberg, a UT physicist from UT, we are only uh, uh, Nobelist at UT, and um, um, from actually a couple of other people that the things that they talked about that they thought could happen, you know, in the next years from climate change, whether you think it's climate change or not, it's all happening. Yeah, I mean Weinberg's in that film shot in. I think early 2004 saying we may see the drowning of Venice, the drowning of Houston, the drowning of Galveston, Miami, Miami, a place of drowning of places like Miami and many other parts of the world. And we, and you know, of course everybody's thinking, well, that must've been 20 years, 30 years in the future he's talking about, but you know, no, it's now. And Mm. it just doesn't take that much increase in the power of the storms and, and uh, to affect us in ways that no one really was fully anticipating, but those Nobelists were yeah. the other, other side of it, I think is ultimately that I mean, kind of the end of that movie is that we are all, no matter what culture you come from, we are all much more alike than we commonly acknowledge. And hmm. whether you're from the U S or you're from Kenya or you're from India, or whether you're a Christian, you're a Muslim, that the things that are, that are alike about us are actually more, we're more alike then we are in the things that are different about us. But the second, the kind of part B of that is that the ways that we're diverse, that we're different, are much more diverse than you think. That we tend to think of, you know, the world tends to think of America as being, you know, the freedom place. And, but they don't really see the diversity of America, just like we tend to think of, of you know, Middle Eastern countries as all being just a, a woman with a veil over her head or Muslims as being terrorists or yeah. any other kind of misconceptions about the world. And, you, you know, everyone who travels knows that everybody you meet everywhere you go, that family is the most important thing to all of them. Hmm. And opportunity doesn't, you know, to be able to pursue a little bit of dream for yourself or your children or your grandkids is, is something that comes close behind. Hmm. And um, it really doesn't matter what culture you, you come up in. And when you recognize that, it makes it a lot easier to see the way other people think and you know i guess hmm. that's part of how you end up winning the nobel peace prize is, yeah. is finding ways to build on that yeah and then you could be bob dylan and just not go <laughs> i talk about it all the time on here that's why i bring it up i, I love i I, I, I can't 
Oh, I interviewed Bob at the Willie Nelson's Big Six O. It was this two-hour CBS special we did for 60th. This for, is bullshit. I want to interview Bob Dylan. We, we, you got to talk to Ray. Okay. Ray Benson's the only one who. That's how it had to happen. We were at the, we were at KLRU. We were filming this special, and Bob was there because he's going to do a couple of songs in the show. He just done Farm Aid. I kind of knew him, but not like Ray or Charlie Sexton. There's people in town who sure. know Bob, you know, and. Ray kept saying, hey, Bob, you know, Turk's interviewing everybody on the show. And he interviewed Ringo Starr, and he interviewed Ray Charles, and interviewed Bonnie Raitt about Willie. Just say anything about Willie. And Bob's like, let me think about it, you know. So finally, Bob says, I'll do it. Um, and I said, okay, well, we've got a little studio set up. Nobody will be there. So, <coughs> And uh, I said, you know, just you and me. I don't know, we're cameraman. And he said, no, man, that'll look, that'll be bullshit. So it's got to be like, like you ran into me. Just like we bumped into each other. You're like, hey, Bob, let me ask you about Willie. I said, okay, we'll get some people around. We'll do it in the hallway. So we get out in the hallway by the elevators at the old studios. And and Bob comes up and says, not enough people, man. This looks like it's all phony. It looks phony, man. So we get more people. There's people all around there chat, 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 chatting a little bit. He goes, yeah, this is good, man. Let's do it. So I say, okay, Bob. I got a mic. It's okay, Bob. Yeah, let me ask you about Willie Nelson, the uh, songwriter. And I put the mic out there and Bob says, I have no, I no cans on. I got no headphones on. And I look behind Bob and all the producers are back there with their headphones on going, huh? It's good. It's good. We're getting Bob. We're getting Bob. We're getting Bob. And I, I, I can't understand. I, I, it's hard to understand Bob. Sure. Anyway. Right. And he's in a crowded room now with people talking and, and he gives me a long answer, which I later listened to on tape and it was really beautiful and went, and at the end of which, no follow-up. I couldn't even go, wow, really? That sounds great. Right. I just went, thank you. Okay, how about <laughs> Willie Nelson, the guitar guitarist? And Bob looked at me like, you're not much of a conversationalist. <laughs> I, got three, I got three questions. But it, it turned out, I think it was the first interview you'd done in a decade on camera. Wow. If you could call it an interview. Yeah. No, I yeah. mean, I, I, yeah. I joke about it all the time just because. Ray or Charlie? I know. I know. I know both of them well. That's that's our Higgs. We got that right. That's our uh, that's our, uh, our our way in. That's that's Ray and Charlie calling me up and saying, "Did you tell Lance?" No, no, no. We'll uh, no, no. Tell him. Tell him. Yeah. What with nobility? I want to talk about water because mm -hmm. the water thing is fascinating to me. Um, and then I want to talk about the library that y'all built. Um, I, I can't pronounce the Muthuini Water Tank Muthuini. Library is really because I cool watched one. I watched well, I watched your TED talk here in Austin, and then I watched some of the trailers on y'all's website. Which, by the way, for the listener, is nobility org. So just like Noble or Nobel, uh, T Itty I T Y dot org. Um, but I just thought it was so fitting that on the library, you know, the, you build this structure and you ship over all these books, or you have these books, and these kids are so excited. And the truck carrying all the books gets stuck in the mud. And you can see the library. You see it. You yeah. see the library at the top of the hill. But I just thought it was, you know, for the if the kids genuinely were excited about the books, I just think it, it makes the story that much better yeah. that they actually had to carry them a half mile. I what those boxes of books were heavy. Those no, were, I know. And the truck little, was... You see those little kids. There's one kid out there. He's just trying to keep the box off the ground. He can barely hold it up. I mean, they'll never... And it was... I carried one, I carried one box of books the whole way. I yeah. had my cameras and was stopping and filming, but I also then felt bad that I was filming and not carrying. And I tell you what, I nearly didn't make it. I, 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 think, it, I think it was perfect that, that, that they had to... That last part was on them. 
it um they'll never forget it everything we build so we, anyway you talk about water it's funny how the water and the books came together with the water tank library but the work in Kenya started, I went to plant trees with the Greenbelt Movement, this organization founded by Wangari Maathai. Uh, they planted millions of trees in Kenya, they, and they employed rural women who'd never worked before. That was a really cool part of the program. I went over there to Wangari, said, you have to come see it firsthand. And, and um, I planted trees with the Greenbelt Movement. I really wanted to go to schools. Everywhere I went when I was filming Nobility, I would make sure I'd go to, to visit schools and hang out with the kids. So I went to this rural school, mm. and... And, uh, you know, if you show up at a school in the U S and <laughs> they, you can't even get in the front door, you know, yeah. to, to intruder alert. But, uh, I, uh, I, a friend took me to a really rural school and, uh, to plant trees. And we, we planted a couple of hundred trees. It, it was as bare as this brown desk here, the whole site. There were no trees, just dirt. It was a drought. The kids were undernourished. They were smaller. They were stunted. They're smaller than their parents and, uh, really, really hard times. And, we planted these trees, and they said, "And I said, hey, you, you planted some trees before I was here. Some of them are brown. Are you not watering the trees?" And they said, "Well, we assign a kid to water each tree. It's like carrying the books, but it's a long walk to get the water. So a lot of the kids are too little." And I said, "Well, how far is the walk?" And they said, "It's about a mile and a half." So it's a three-mile walk. I said, "Well, what about the water they drink at school?" And it's about a mile and a half. So the kids are drinking, you know, essentially drinking a pond water that they had to walk three miles round trip to carry. And they said, we've been trying to come up with the money to build a purified water system. So I said, okay, well, I'll find the money. We'll, we'll build it. We went back to open the water system. They built it, you know, and went back to, it didn't cost very much. You're talking about a well. No, it was a rainwater collection gotcha. system with on, on the basketball storage court. tanks. So before the basketball court. Okay. And this was when the school was nothing but just mud floors and rotten wooden walls and cold in the classrooms it, people think it's hot in kenya but it, most of it's up in the mountains and it and went back to open the the water system and then we brought in electricity we had built a little library and a computer lab with the olpcs i was on the on the board of uh, the 50 by 15 pound foundation which is part of that one laptop per child hmm. deal and and the school said this is all great but we would like to water's a big change but we really would love to have a high school because I said, well, where do the kids go after they get out of the eighth grade? And they said, well, there's, you know, it's a long eight miles to the closest school. So that's a 16-mile round-trip walk. Wow. Um, See, that's where the bike comes in. Yeah, Turkey. it is, although it is. I'll tell you what, and we do bikes. So you know, I'll tell you about the bikes and laptop program we do, but it, it's downhill and uphill like that to that, to that nearest school. Yeah. So, But if you're on this side of the river, a bike is ideal. You don't have to go down through the river and up the other side. So we... We built Mahiga Hope High School, which is the third of those films, um, and that was wonderful. And that expanded into well, let's work with some more primary schools. Let's do more water systems. Let's build more classrooms. Let's. But communities kept coming to us and say, "We need a high school. We need a high school." Yeah, I bet they did. And and, um, and what do we talk? What does it cost? Well, to it, build a high school in Kenya. Well, because I got if, if you, you said it's a it, thousand bucks or a million bucks, I would I yeah, would believe both. Well, it probably cost what it. Build a whole high school over there probably costs about what it would cost to build a classroom over here. But if you're talking off the top of my head, we just built an eight-classroom, two-story block at a school in a really remote area called Old Moran Secondary. Beautiful, beautiful uh, building. And there's a big library in one of those classrooms and a big computer lab in the other classroom. And that was about uh, 80, probably stocked with books and computers, was probably about $100,000 <laughs> for that building. 
Um, we just did a well there, talking about water, which we which we partnered on the on the well. Half the money was raised by the Turk Wine, you know Austin Hope from Triana Winery, and yep. Austin you've Triana given some of your wine. They make the Turk Wine, yeah. Um, magnums only, and it's turning <laughs> wine into water. Just, you got to really want to open a bottle of wine when you open that Magnum. And then Well Aware is a water, another water group in town, Sarah <laughs> Evans Water Group, but they paid for half the well, so that. It spreads it out, you know. So that was twenty grand each. So we we spent forty on the well. We'd previously built a couple of rainwater systems at this school. It's a really rapidly growing school. In I know, the, but the, I don't conflict but the, like, area. Add it all up, two hundred and fifty grand. Yeah, yeah. But yeah that's, chemistry that's, labs, admin buildings, a dorm, two hundred and fifty grand, and and built to last. And you can put four hundred, five hundred kids in there, and every year a hundred, one hundred and fifty kids are graduating, and they're going on to vocational school or college, or they have a high school degree. Yeah. yeah. And they are, they're built to last. Yeah. These things are indestructible. Yeah. And the well thing, like if you're like, you talk about the trees that are look like they're dying because they're not getting the water. If you just, I mean, why wouldn't, cause you, you hear about this all the time and I, I'm totally clueless. Right. So about lack of water and water quality, I mean, aside from needing the money to build a well, but if you just, anybody can build a well. You can, it depends on the, it, or are there places where it, well, the wells don't the, work? It depends on the groundwater. The, it, it It's challenging. Like at Old Moran, um, where we just drilled that well, that's a 180-meter well. So, you know, you're talking about a 600-foot deep well in a really yeah. remote area, getting the rigs and everything are in there. It's expensive. And so the, where the water, you got to get to the water the, table. Um, we, we didn't think the electricity is a reliable. There's power lines there but we wanted to have solar just to make sure that it's mm -hmm. always going to be working and banks of batteries and everything so it's a fairly complex process and a lot of hydrology studies involved to hit the water because you, a lot of times you can drill a well that deep and not find water at all um, we're partner with a, a beautiful lodge uh, now called angama uh, in the mara it's i think one of the most beautiful hotels in the world and um it, extremely expensive but we're we're kind of partnering with them to help build schools near hmm. their, their lodge. And they have a, a lake that they've built in a, in a big, deep, deep crevasse that drops off into the Maasai Mara, into the plains, and that's where their water supply comes from. Last year, the lake went dry, and they were hauling water to this, I mean, seven-star hotel. There's no, it's, it's like the place is amazing. They had no water. And they just drilled a 180-meter deep well uh, when I was there, and it was dry. And this is an extremely well-funded operation. It's one of the larger, more exclusive travel organizations in the world. And they they're, they can't solve their, They haven't come up with a permanent solution. So that's why we build rainwater in a lot of places. Yeah. So the rainwater court, we Assuming built it rains. basketball court. But if you build a big enough roof and you build big enough storage, then you calculate how much water you can catch for every inch of rain. How long will that last in the dry season? Yeah. And... Um, that was a Nike. That was back when you were at Nike. That, that was a grant we got from Nike that built the rainwater court. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it had, obviously, the basketball court, had a stage, had a, uh, uh, obviously, the rainwater. Dick, our good friend Dick Clark, the mm. architect who passed away uh, recently in Austin, a great loss to Austin and his Dick's many friends. Dick was the original designer on that. He won, actually, top award from a Texas Society oh, of Architects I didn't know for that. that building. Huh. It's a gorgeous building. So anyway, that brings us up to Muthweeney, trying to pull it together. We, I was going to this primary school. We started working three or four years ago. A headmaster there, this woman named Margaret, it's just a bundle of joy, huge smile on her face all the time, <laughs> laughing. Yeah. Kids love her and the parents love her, and, but a school's just like 
dealing with no money whatsoever. Yeah, right. And they, actually, the a lot of the classrooms were in old British dairy barns. <laughs> when the Brits left after independence, they just the community took over the dairy barns and turned it into a school. So they had this old dairy farm, huge water tank that was cracked, and they kept saying, "Can you fix the tank so we can store water in it?" And I kept saying, "No." For three or four visits. And I kept thinking, but we could put books in it and came up with this idea of turning the water tank. You know, the sustainability, I learned a lot from Cameron Sinclair, who was the founder of Architecture of Humanity, about reuse of buildings in general. That, you know, we have a tendency just to knock stuff down and take it to the landfill and start over. And the world's resources are somewhat limited. If you can reuse what's there, you don't have to make that new concrete. You don't have to quarry that new stone. And, um, it takes a lot of concrete and water to pour a water tank. Uh, and, um, so we, it's an architect from San Francisco, Stanley Sadowitz, really fantastic designer who builds skyscrapers and all kinds yeah. of stuff. He's from South Africa originally. He came to me and said, I'm looking for a project to do with you. And I said, let's build this thing together. And it is, it's gorgeous. Two-story library built out of this big tank. All the structural elements are in the bottom of the tank so that we didn't have to rest anything on the walls. We weren't sure how strong they are, right. even though they're massively thick and keep the building cool. But, um... It uh, and the structural elements are the actual bookshelves. That's a very very cool project. Muthuini you guys, tank yeah, you guys can see it on nobility.org. Yes, the lead video yep. I think on our website and yep. on our YouTube. You channel. got all kinds of the flamingo story, the library story, I, the, the I made fifty short films in addition. To yeah, the, the butterfly story. Huh. Um. Now to really and truly shift gears because well both of these uh next two things i want to talk about i'm i'm just selfishly i'm interested in okay so the two things that are the two topics one is willie nelson and and number two is golf which we both share a, a real love for golf but first let's talk about willie because you and willie write you wrote the tau of willie or as willie says the toe of willie <laughs> the toe of willie a guide <laughs> to the happiness in your heart and on the back willie says this book is my way of sharing a little of what I've learned in 72 years of making music and friends on this beautiful planet. I don't know if the things I write here will change your life, but they sure have changed mine. That's New York Times bestseller. Yeah, Willie, uh, I'd known Willie a long time. It's like Rodney. I opened for Willie. I was, I was Willie's opening act at Auditorium Shores. I don't remember what year, maybe 70, 1979 or something. Mm. This is the time when I was performing and doing a lot of shows at Armadillo and Paramount and stuff. You know, met Lyle and Robert Keene and all those guys shortly after that. And I did my show, and I got off stage. A crowd liked my show. I juggled torches, you know, and they and then they said, "Go back out and do five more minutes." And I said, "No way, they want Willie." And uh, and they said, "We haven't seen Willie." And I said, "I ain't going out there again." They said, "What did you knock on the door of his bus?" And they went, "We're afraid to." <laughs> so I went over to Willie's bus and knocked on the door. Yeah. So I met Willie and said, "They're ready for you to go on, Mister Nelson." And he said, "I was wondering when they were going to come for oh me." Oh my God. And he said, come on. And then I think Steve Fromholtz took me back out to play golf with Willie not long after that. And, and uh, so we've, we've spent a lot of time together over the years and played a lot of golf together. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, the, um, the regular listener of the show knows that, that he's a dear friend and I go out there and play golf and gamble. And it's actually mostly gambling with a side of golf. Yeah, well, it used is, to be more, more golf and less gambling. But, you know, Willie's, let's face it, he's not quite as young as he used to be. Yep. And now it's like if the weather's absolutely perfect. If it's 69 to 74 degrees, Willie will play three to six holes. Yeah. And, um, 
Or he can go to Maui and he'll go play nine at Maui Country Club. Right. But um, or play cards with you. But Willie is everything good you ever heard about Willie underestimates who Willie Nelson is. Really? And wow. I think, and everything bad that you ever heard about Willie, if you ever heard anything bad about Willie, like, oh, I heard he cheated on his taxes or whatever, you're wrong. That, that's my opinion. In my opinion, the guy, you know, does he have a temper sometimes? Maybe. But I, in my opinion, he is he is just truly an amazing, amazing American. Yeah. I mean, just the talent side of it. We know about the talent side. Yeah. As a, as a human being. And how much time did you get with him to write the book well i wrote i'd been writing about willie for magazines yeah for years and i wrote i was in so movies with willie i wrote yeah. scenes for movies uh, we did a couple of movies that i wrote the scenes willie and i were in so i taught him to be a con man or a magician and do tricks and he fooled me in the scenes which was kind of fun and um but i had written a lot about willie and i had all of those stories and all of those notes and when when we tell he tell jokes on the golf course i'd write him down on the golf on the four words of it down so I'd remember it on the, cause you know, let's face it. You may not be in your total met, full mental capacity while you're sure. playing golf with the Willie. I'd write down a couple of words and later on I go, Oh, that was a great joke. Willie told me I, I had a lot of the material. I went back to Willie and said, you know, let's do a book. Yeah. It was first called Wednesdays with Willie. Cause we used to play golf every Wednesday. And then, you know, I won that too many years probably after the Tuesdays with Maury, a very big New York Times sure. bestseller advice book. And But when we hit upon the whole idea of Willie's kind of Baptist, Buddhist philosophy and how much that fit into the whole you know Chinese philosophy of the Tao, of the Tao Te Ching, then that's how it ended up being the Tao of Willie. You know, there's now the Tao of Bill Murray. Um, right. and, but Bill Murray tweets about how much he loves this book. Yeah, which, you know, uh, they've, they're, 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 they must be drastically different. The, uh, I, yeah, they are. I actually haven't read the the Tao of Bill Murray because I I um I'm happy with where I'm at. Yeah, <laughs> but a yeah. uh, Bill is a uh, uh, Bill's another uh, one of those sort of amazing Americans. But um, he may yet grow into a Willie Nelson. You know, he, he his legend is the, the legend is certainly there or bigger. Yeah, he, but, he and he perpetuates that thing. We're talking about Bill Murray. I mean, yeah. the whole you know the the voicemail. I mean, you didn't even have a a. a you know, an agent. He has a lawyer. That there's has an a, undercurrent that, of wisdom in what Bill Murray yeah. does, though. That just like there's always been an undercurrent of wisdom in what what Willie does, yeah. and you know, and even the silly things he talks about. You know, Willie's. You know, breathe is one of. There's a whole chapter in there called breathe. You know, you wake up in the morning. Willie wakes up in the morning. He breathes. When you hear him sing in the studio, the air comes out. You cannot imagine how much air comes out of his lungs. You can feel it. Hmm. Just like his capacity like you as an athlete yeah. i'm sure your lung capacity is amazing i don't know if you sing or not but all that oxygen i sing when you time. breathe and when you breathe deep that is a big part of your life and you know that's what happens when people go inside their shells and you get smaller you don't breathe breathe deep you know yeah. and but when willie says you know drink water is another thing that you know most people probably don't drink enough water and probably drink too much soda and booze and all kinds of other things and coffee instead of water but you know Willie's great way of putting it is uh, piss more. You'll live longer. Wake and bake and drink water. That's the takeaway from the book. Yeah, well, more or less. And it worked for him. <laughs> well. well, love, you know, once again, at the end of it, here, let me see the book for a second. Yep. At the very end, he says, uh, returning to the, world's, the words of Khalil Gibran that I first read so many years ago, I'm reminded that in our quest to return to God, each of us in our heart carries a map to that quest, a map that is made of love. 
Here it is. Love is what I live on. Love is what keeps me going. So all I can say to you is that I've, is what I've said to myself a thousand times. Open your heart, Willie, and give love a try. You'll be amazed at what happens. So far, it's worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. Boy, he would have questioned it there for a period. I mean, uh, the the you know the, I, I love the arc of his story. It just you know the the you brought it up. I mean, the IRS stuff, and then you know how he had this network of friends that that literally carried him through that and helped him through it and now you know i I played golf with well you know willie didn't do anything on in the whole irs thing he didn't do his taxes he hired you know the best accounting company in the united states to do his taxes and they put him in a bunch of tax shelter stuff (laughs) to to lower the amount of taxes he was going to pay and that stuff was later declared illegal and the irs was in the eighties was very punitive. That relates to one of the books, by the way, in my, uh, in my book of the month club, every, every other, and every other month club. And <clears throat> then they came after Willie. I mean, you know, they said, you owe us $33 million. It was more than he'd made. And so, you know, Willie, Willie went to, you know, he went to Branson, Missouri for a year. He recorded the IRS tapes. He took every cent he made for a year and, and these albums that he made. And, uh, he, they took all his stuff and sold that and which his friends, a lot of his friends bought, bought back like the golf course. Yep. And, and he, uh, any of the stuff he didn't get back, he said, ah, it's stuff. I'll let it go. It doesn't matter. Uh, he paid the IRS back. And then a couple of years later, when the, with a jury trial where the trial was about to go to jury in Dallas with barefoot Sanders presiding in the case against Willie against an accounting firm and uh how'd you like to be an accounting firm going up against barefoot in a barefoot sanders course a very famous uh court very famous texas lawyer named barefoot in a trial against willie nelson and the day before they went to trial they settled sure and i was playing golf with willie he said i got some good news today they settled the irs suit and, and i won and you know that they, they ruled that the uh, accounting company was responsible, not me. And uh, and there's a judgment, and I won. I said, "You're going to end up with anything left over after you pay all the lawyers and everything?" And he said, "Oh, maybe just a little bit to put in my pocket," which I took to mean pretty good. Right. But uh, well, I can't imagine what it must be like to 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 be up against the government when they want thirty three million dollars. Well, you just actually. Also, that, that was a joke. But it's your reputation is up against it too, yeah. and the government says you did something terribly wrong that you didn't really do wrong, but, but the thing to do is to say, I believe in America, I'm going to pay my debt. If the, if, and if the courts end up saying that's what I really owed, then I'll have already paid my debt. That'll be great. Yep. And that's Willie. Yep. And also he's a no regret guy, which is another great thing you learned from Willie. The things you did yesterday that, you know, there's a lot of times there's nothing you can do about it. If you know, you can go back to people and tell them you love them. And, uh, if they don't think you love them, but you know, in some way, uh, you know, as he says, if we're backing up, it's just to get a running start. <laughs> oh God! Let's talk about the old man and the tea. I didn't know you wrote this book, but uh, I, but, but as I should have brought you a copy of that. You should have brought me a copy of that. So, and, and as I read the 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 you know synopsis here on Amazon, you you, you devote a year. I love how you must have just pitched this to your wife, like, honey. <laughs> I'm going to take a year, and all I'm going to do is play golf. I mean, who the fuck says that and gets away with it? Well, fucking me, that's who. I mean, you're, that, you're the luckiest bitch ever. So I'm going to take a year uh, and play golf, and I'm going to try to lower my handicap by 10 strokes. And Christy, Christy of course, said, A, are you going to make any money? Yep. And B, 
yeah, 10 strokes, what's that? That wouldn't be very hard, right? <laughs> well, as, as you know, and as the golfers listening know, I mean, well, at least in the way our games probably are, I mean, 10 strokes, swings. And I've been at that handicap since I was a kid. I started playing when I was really young, and, and I basically had been, you know, my handicap had gone up a few strokes, so I had some leeway there because I'd been So you started at 14 or 16? What was the handicap when you started? Well, I ended up not, what I ended up doing was I shot a marker around it at Pebble. All the, the, the whole book came about because right before my dad died, and he was in the hospital, and he and I sat around, and we were watching the AT&T Pro-Am and mm-hmm. Ed Pebble and watching Bill Murray and we were watching him like we had when I was a kid and my dad said uh, he was a big Arnold Palmer fan and as I was and and he said that's a beautiful place we should have gone there and I was just struck with regret that I never took my dad to Pebble Beach and and uh, so I went out there just that was what the start was I was just going to go play a round for my dad mm-hmm. play a really good round mm-hmm. of golf and I went out there and I practiced too I didn't want to go out there and suck and I went out there and Pebble absolutely yeah it kicked my butt, yeah. and um, I have to I almost have to look at the book now. But I think I shot ninety, and I was thinking maybe I could shoot low eighties or something. I made because I practiced a lot. I worked really hard, and I shot ninety, and then I just was bummed, and I just felt like I'd let my dad down, even though he was gone by then. And uh, I, um, and that's where I came up with this idea: I could come back to Pebble in a year and try to lower my score by ten strokes. In one round of golf, and you were going to seek out David Ledbetter, yeah. uh, Pels, Crenshaw, all these guys, all these guys, and I, I. And when I was putting it together, when I was getting putting the idea together, uh, Arnold Palmer was just opening up uh, Lake Cliff Country Club, Bobby Day's course, sure. and and Arnie Love was Lake here, Cliff. and I helped him open that, and I and I spent some time with Ar- with Arnie and was talking to him about my dad and different things, and mm. and. Um, I'd met him at other places, you know, I was writing for golf digest and golf magazine some then. So anyway, I told Arnie, I said, I want to do this thing where I go back to pebble and take 10 strokes off my handicap. And Arnie was actually one of the owners of pebble. So anyway, he said the same thing. Harvey Pinnock always said to me, he said, let me see your hands. And he looked at my golf calluses and looked at me and said, yeah, I think you could do it. I don't know what bad calluses he was looking at, but you know, you do get some weird calluses in your hands when you play a lot. And, um, and that was really a lot of the confidence. So when the book came out, Arnie, we really, we had the first signing was at the first Teague national golf tournament at Pebble beach. And I had the signing on the porch of the pro shop at the first tee and Arnie came to my signing <laughs> and bought a, a book oh, wow. with a highlight of my life. At this I point. bet. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you, did you, when you went back a year later, what'd you, what'd you shoot? I, I, well, I, I mean, you had all these great, all, away, but all I, these great I, teachers. All I, these. um, I, I missed it by, I missed it by two strokes and I walk in the morning, in a morning round and walk in the clubhouse and laid down $300 and said, put me out. I want to go play again. Yep. And then I made it in the afternoon round. Nice. And I was tired and drunk that night. <laughs> <laughs> 36, walking 36 at Pebbles, a lot of work. Yeah. The weather was because the weather. Well, the for weather those, was fine. Yeah, yeah. I the weather. Have I couldn't be, have done it anyway. I mean, sometimes I when they play that program, and my game's I mean, terrible again now. You know, it, it actually you and got, me both. It got better for a, few, a couple of years after that when the book really came out, and I read the book, and all those lessons from Pels and Crenshaw got really got in my head even better. I got I got really good for a while, and then I don't know, broke my leg, and you know, things happen. Yeah, I got busy with the Nobility Project. Yeah. Hey, that's a good excuse. I mean, I don't know that I'll ever play as much as I used to, 
you know, I'd spend a lot of time in Kenya and I go to Latin America and work on these projects. It's hard to, hard to justify the golf time. Yeah. Well, yeah, after you, after you persuaded your wife that you were going to do it for a year, yeah, you, you, yeah. that was it. But my my wife is a saint, and I'm the lucky guy, as everyone has has always said. So. I love your TED, the TED talk. You you talk, uh, and the listener can check it out on YouTube or whatever. But you you, st- you guys start the thing, and your wife is Christy's. By the way, I didn't know. Maybe I did know this, but I either didn't know or I've forgotten it that she's a breast cancer survivor, which yeah t- was t- sweet t- when she talked about two timer two times. That was the first time. Awesome. Came back after that, unfortunately, but yeah. good now. But you're six seven, and she's five one. Dude, makes for a lot of jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and the, and I saw this quote of hers, which I just I just love, and I I probably should have her in here to to, to explain it. But she says, "This is your wife, Christy says, local action has global impact," which I I can't make sense of that, but but she can. Well, I, I, she can, and, and it does if it does for you, but the. But it does in surprising ways. Willie talks about in, in the middle of those movies, there's a whole segment with Willie that's basically how do you live your life. I actually mm-hmm. use that Bob Schneider song, the whole lyric of which is how do you live your life, how do you live your life, how do you live your life. Um, but w- Willie talks about the way you live your life. And, you know, if you you know, if you know, drive a car that gets four miles to the gallon and you have a 14,000 square foot house with the doors open on the air conditioning all the time and you don't engage with your neighbors and you are suspicious of people that aren't like you. There's a lot of ways all these things come together. Then you're having a completely different impact on the world, the world around you, but the world as a whole than you do if you're really thinking consciously about how you live your life mm-hmm. and the, and the way you live your life, you know, it relates to you eat healthy food the way the food that you eat comes out of if it comes out of a healthy agriculture system and it, it impacts the the world in a positive way if it comes out of the american pesticide industry it doesn't it doesn't impact the world in a positive way and we are um we are eating the world yeah as a people yeah and our and it's you know it's not going to be an easy thing for people to get a grip on and it's very hard when you look at issues like climate change and you look at you know you hear pesticide issues you look at cancer and the prevalence of cancer in the world and whether there are tie-ins to the chemicals right. that are in our food supply and are in in our environment everywhere in the world it's very frustrating and hard to want to think about mm. because you what impact am i going to have i'm one person but you can have an impact in the way you live your life and the way your children live their lives and the way that you engage with other people and uh, if everybody takes that attitude, then everything starts to change. Yeah, we do a we do a, a great huh. event at the Paramount Theater. Um, one of our partners, we bring a thousand sixth graders to the Paramount, and we bus them in, and um, we show them a short, uh, like a thirty-five or forty-minute version of Building Hope. We might show them our Monarch Butterfly film or something that is engaged to the world around them. The Monarchs are a great example of. What we do here impacts monarchs in Mexico and in Canada, and and really tied to the agriculture system in the U.S. as well. And we're losing the migration, but um, we show these films to these kids, and then we do a live Skype call with kids in Kenya. We go to a school in Kenya, and we put the Skype call up on the big screen. We got a little computer down there, and kids here come up. And they hold up a sign with their name on it, and they say, "Hi, you know, I'm Jesse, and I'm in the sixth grade, and I go to you know Westridge, and and uh, I want to ask you, you know." 
how many hours do you spend at school? Do you walk to school? You know, what do you play sports? You know, what kind of foods do you like? What's your life like? And these kids have these conversations. It is mind blowing. I bet. I bet. And how much they're like, actually, and yeah. how different and how much alike. Huh. Wow. Awesome, Turk. I'm gonna go play golf. You got me inspired. Yeah. I actually I'm gonna actually I'm gonna go gamble with a little side side part of golf. Well, that's exactly. So, so here's the thing. The, the, the bottom line for me is this is as your great uh, uh, forward is uh, going on live. We have uh, my Indiegogo campaign, TurkPipkin.com. That's right. TurkPipkin.com is the best place to find it. Um, but it's a, it's the Indiegogo subscription for just these six books. It's not going to be like years of books showing up at your house. And the books are all really cool. It's a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, you can, if you want to buy one of my wildlife photos, which are really beautiful, like big frame canvases and really gorgeous, you can throw in a little extra money and get one of those. And w book for book, one for one, like the Tom's model, one for one, book sure. for book. Every one of these books funds a book in a library over there. And we're, and we're already started building those libraries. These books yep. are going to go into. And um, I think people are going to love them. Yeah, so. good. I think they will too. If I could just read one book in a year, I'd, I'd be. Well, Moleskin Mystery is the one for you, the one in the Moleskin, <laughs> because it's written the length Short. of written the length of a Moleskin. Awesome. And um, it uh, and it's a uh, it's a very beautiful love story about a guy who finds a notebook and the guy's life is in a wreck and he realizes, look, well, I'd figure out what the mystery that's in this partially finished notebook is. Maybe I can figure out what's what happened to my life. Wow. And yeah, exactly. uh, it's a cool book. Um, so turkpipkin turkpipkin.com or nobility.org and on there, you know, for example, I mean, you go all the way through, you can check out feed the peace February 11th here in Austin. Exactly. Yeah. And then just, and you know, a lot of tons, tons of inspiring content and pleasure having you here, man. My pleasure. Yeah. It, it, um, Good luck. I'm going to, when we were off air, I'm going to show you some pictures of a camel walk. I took 80 miles across Northern Kenya and it is perfectly suited to Lance Armstrong to go walk the desert. You would absolutely love it. Hmm. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Thanks for tuning in to the Forward Podcast. Like, uh, like I said at the top of the show, if you have anything you want to say, if you have a suggestion, please, God knows I need suggestions. Um, or questions or concerns or criticisms or whatever, let me know. Send me an email. Send it to theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. I know it's long. I know it's a little confusing. Theforwardpodcast at wedo, W-E-D-U, sport, singular, dot com. Theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. 